A 47-year-old woman with a history of fibromyalgia looks at her pain diary. Today was not a great day, she thought to herself. The body pain limited her ability to move as much as she wanted to through the day. She tried to maintain a healthy diet. She had actually recently seen a social media ad on supplements. She thought to herself if she should try supplements. But were they safe? Which ones should she take? What was even in them? Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to The Hurt Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to discuss dietary supplements for chronic musculoskeletal pain. Supplements can be a contentious topic in medicine for multiple reasons due to stigma, lack of research, as well as possible side effects and drug interactions. And supplements don't necessarily just mean medications, but also types of food with macronutrients and micronutrients, which can affect the body's health. Understanding how these macro and micronutrients and vitamins affect the body and pain is an important part for patients to understand before implementing them into their pain regimen. So joining us today, we have a special guest, Dr. Tina Doshi. Dr. Doshi is an assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine, Division of Pain Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Doshi has been involved in numerous clinical trials for the treatment of neuropathic pain with a particular interest in craniofacial pain and developing precision pain medicine approaches for pain treatment. She is the recipient of multiple research grants from sponsors, including the Johns Hopkins Neurosurgery Pain Research Institute, the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH, and the Foundation of Anesthesia Education and Research. Dr. Doshi is also an expert on many chronic pain-related topics, including the use of supplements for chronic pain. We're so excited to have her on our podcast today. Welcome, Dr. Doshi. So let's start by defining some of the words our listeners will need to know. Can you tell us what the difference is between a vitamin, a mineral, and a macro and micronutrient? Yeah, so the human diet is composed of both macronutrients and micronutrients. Macronutrients are things that your body needs in large amounts to function, things like fats, carbohydrates, and protein, and some minerals, while micronutrients are things that your body still needs, but just in smaller quantities. So micronutrients can include some um, vitamins and minerals, Vitamins are these organic compounds that your body needs to function, and for the most part, your body can't make them, so you have to consume them. Minerals are elements like calcium or magnesium, zinc. They're also necessary for your body to function, um, but you may not need them in as large a quantity as like the macronutrients um, for most of them. Um, I'll also include one more definition, which is dietary supplements, and that those are products that you consume outside of your regular diet or conventional food, and that can include things like vitamins, minerals, herbs, amino acids, um, sometimes in combination um, with each other in the form of multivitamins, um, and sometimes 
as extracts or isolates. Um, so sometimes dietary supplements can be larger quantities of the micronutrients that we need to function. Um, and sometimes there are like compounds that can be beneficial to health, but we don't necessarily need them in order to function. And how do they play a role in pain processing? I think it helps if you think about um, pain as a series of cellular responses to a painful stimulus, like an injury. So you have this pain or this insult to the body and the cells at the site of injury are having to sense this. And they then they transmit signals back to the cells in your spinal cord and to your brain to perceive this pain. And then the neurons in your brain and your spinal cord send another signal back down to either control or um, uh, control that pain or um, modulate the body's response to it. So macronutrients and micronutrients are essential to cell processing and that cell signaling. Um, and so in order to get that whole pathway to function properly, you need those macronutrients and micronutrients in your diet. When you have too much or too little of certain macronutrients or micronutrients, it can throw off those signaling pathways. That is so interesting. So there are many nuances to the pain processing pathway. And like you said, a lot of what we eat could also play a role in that. So can you expand a bit more about which of these have been shown to help with pain reduction and possibly even pain exacerbation? Yeah, so it's important to recognize that there's no single dietary supplement that's been conclusively linked to reducing pain. There are a lot of different dietary supplements that have some evidence for being helpful in chronic pain with a relatively low risk of harm, but for the most part, it's a really hard thing to study. So you have to remember that dietary supplements in general are not regulated by the FDA, and they're not necessarily great dosing guidelines. So a lot of times when a group of researchers tries to study a supplement, it may not be in the same form or manufactured in the same way as when another group tries to study it. And often things like dose or frequency of administration, duration of treatment, follow-up period, all of those things, even the type of questions that researchers ask in order to assess the pain can vary from one study to another. And I think a lot of times in science, there's this tendency to want to prove that the thing you're studying actually makes a difference. And there are lots of ways that researchers and research participants can consciously or unconsciously bias the results. And this can become a lot easier if your supplement isn't regulated by the FDA. So all of these things make it really hard to compare across studies and judge whether supplements truly work. That being said, you know, there are some supplements that seem to have some signal of effectiveness and pain. And like I said, for the most part, um, they do tend to have relatively safe risk profiles. And perhaps one of the most well-studied of these is um, omega-3 fatty acids, which are the healthy polyunsaturated fats that are found in walnuts and oily fish like salmon. Omega-3s are really important in the synthesis of both pro- and anti-inflammatory compounds, but on the whole, we think of omega-3 fatty acids as having more of an anti-inflammatory effect. And there's some data in clinical trials to suggest that increasing the ratio of omega-3 fatty acids compared to other types of fats in the diet can decrease inflammation. And so just in the same way that it's part of a heart-healthy diet and promotes heart cardiovascular health, it can also decrease inflammation, decrease pain sensitivity, um, and particularly in patients who have inflammatory pain like arthritis. They may also treat pain by modifying certain 
cell signaling pathway, pathways or neurotransmission pathways involved in pain. Um, and in general, you have a lot of different studies that have looked at this, like I said, a wide variability in terms of dosing and uh, regimens. But for the most part, it seems that one to four grams of fish oil daily is, or omega-3 fatty acids, it can be from fish or it can be from plant products, but omega-3 fatty acids daily can be um, beneficial for, for pain. And just for reference, I said one to four grams of omega-3 fatty acids, you can get two grams, about two and a half grams of omega-3s from an ounce of walnuts. Um, and you can get one gram of omega-3s from like a three and a half ounce portion of salmon. But you can also get the over-the-counter supplements like plant or animal-based. That's so interesting. I really like how you sum that up, especially the research aspect of it, because I think as consumers, we often just see like the flashy media headlines, right? That this is shown to help with that or whatever it may be. But really to compare apples to apples or oranges to oranges, it's you have to really go down to the research. And like you said, the research is so variable with the like the duration, the dosage, all of that. Um, can you tell us a bit more about, so often I have patients that come in and say, what about vitamin D or vitamin B12, vitamin C? Can you tell us a bit more about those that are linked to chronic pain? Yeah, um, of the vitamins that you mentioned, there's probably the most study um, in pain on the B vitamins and vitamin D. So remember that the B vitamins are actually a group of eight vitamins um, that perform various metabolic functions in the body. Um, mostly in, we think of them um, as being helpful for the immune system and the nervous system. Specifically within the B vitamins, there's probably the most research on vitamin B12 or cobalamin, which is important in the cell for DNA synthesis and nerve cell function. So there's some very limited data and weak evidence to suggest that it's helpful for peripheral neuropathy or that peripheral nerve pain that's associated with things like diabetic neuropathy or chemotherapy-induced neuropathy. In general, higher doses tend to be more effective. Um, so the human diet only requires you to have about two and a half micrograms of B12 in order to function. But most studies of vitamin B12 for pain have looked at 500 to 1,000 micrograms or even more. The, on the bright side, it's generally pr pretty well tolerated. Um, another vitamin that I often get asked about is vitamin D. So we know that vitamin D deficiency is associated with things like osteoporosis, but also bone pain, muscle pain, and as well as chronic widespread pain and fibromyalgia. And important to recognize that about a third of Americans are vitamin D deficient. So it's definitely worth supplementing if a patient is deficient. And that can manifest as things like fatigue, muscle weakness, bone and joint pain, depression, and poor wound healing. So all things that we see our patients experiencing. In general, adults 70 and under need uh, 600 IU or international units of vitamin D a day. Um, adults over 70 need 800 other than for patients who have vitamin D deficiency, however, the, um, the data for supplementing vitamin D it is pretty for, for chronic pain is pretty low. So um, you know, it's hard for me to recommend giving someone extra vitamin D unless they're already deficient, but relatively low risk of harm. Um, and then in terms of some of the other ones you mentioned, um, vitamin C, vitamin E, 
Those can be effective, um, but generally they've been studied for more specific pain populations rather than for um, chronic pain in general. And again, the evidence is quite weak. Um, there's some suggestion that vitamin C, for example, um, which is an antioxidant, can help prevent complex regional pain syndrome after orthopedic surgery. So as you know, complex regional pain syndrome or CRPS um, is this rare but debilitating condition that occurs after part of the body is injury, injured usually due to like trauma or surgery. Um, and so having high dose vitamin C supplementation around the time of an orthopedic surgery, which um, has this risk of CRPS, may prevent the development of that condition. Um, and then there's a little bit of data for vitamin E that it might be helpful for things like menstrual cramps. Um, and the usual recommendation there is to take it two days before um, the bleeding starts and then three days after, after it starts. And that may reduce pain um, during menstruation and may also reduce uh, menstrual bleeding. I love that. And then one more, since we're talking about women's health related sort of pain, menstrual pain, what about magnesium? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So magnesium is probably the best studied mineral um, for pain. It's important for a lot of different things like energy production, muscle function, bone formation, protein synthesis. And um, it, it turns out about half of all Americans are ingesting less magnesium than they are recommended to. Um, but I will say that clinically magnesium deficiency um, is that is so severe as to cause clinical symptoms, it, it's pretty rare. But if there is magnesium deficiency, it can include things like fatigue, muscle wasting, muscle twitching, cramps, seizures. And so we have this kind of link between how the body is feeling, right, and the magnesium deficiency. And we also know that magnesium works in a similar way to drugs that act on neurotransmitters that are known to have an effect in pain. So in this case, it's the NMDA receptor antagonists, not that you know, there's going to be a quiz at the end, but we know that that receptor is responsible for generating pain signals. So magnesium has been an interesting mineral to study, and um, we've looked at, or researchers have looked at it in a wide variety of pain conditions, anything from um, neuropathic and nerve pain conditions like cancer pain or chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, diabetic neuropathy, post-herpetic neuralgia, but also other conditions uh, like muscle and joint pains like fibromyalgia, um, low back pain, also headaches. Um, and so one of my areas of clinical interest is in craniofacial pain. I see a lot of migraine patients. And the interesting thing is that um, the American Headache Society, American Academy of Neurology 2012 guidelines um, state that magnesium has pretty good level B evidence for um, preventing migraines. And so the recommended dose uh, for magnesium in preventing migraines is 300 milligrams twice a day or 600 milligrams daily. Um, for the other chronic pain conditions that I talked about, the evidence is equivocal, but I think there's enough signal there, enough data to suggest that it's worth studying more and trying to figure out, you know, what exactly is the best dose and what exactly is the right patient population for, for magnesium in patients with chronic pain. Can you just clarify for the listeners what type of magnesium, because there are many different formulations, so magnesium glycinate versus um, magnesium lactate or citrate or whatever it may be, because they do have different effects on the body in terms of side effects. 
Yeah, so there are lots of different types of magnesium out there. And I think um, the most common would be like magnesium oxide or magnesium sulfate. And those are generally pretty well tolerated. Um, but you do bring up a good point. It's the main side effect with this is that, um, as we know from milk of magnesia, it can cause um, at higher doses, a lot of cramping, intestinal discomfort, um, even diarrhea. And so we try to convert um, to elemental magnesium to you know, find the correct dosing. But in general, I, I typically recommend like the easy to find safe over-the-counter supplements of magnesium oxide or magnesium um, sulfate. Those tend to be pretty well tolerated. That's really good to know. And Clinically speaking, do you test for like vitamin D levels or mag levels on patients when you're treating, or do you look at if the labs are already there and then sort of make judgment calls? It's a really interesting concept, I think, in chronic pain because we don't necessarily need to check labs, but should we be for anybody who might be interested in supplementation? I think that it is something that is worth considering. I will say that I don't regularly do it, um, but I think it's often part of um, a, a good primary care physician's workup when a patient is complaining of these nonspecific um, symptoms of maybe like fatigue, restlessness, um, and they may have other like muscle aches and pains. It's not unreasonable to check those levels um, or suggest that they get those levels checked because it may be an indicator of something else going on as well. Um, I don't typically check these things, um, but I, I definitely know that um, if a patient is deficient in any sort of vitamin D or magnesium, um, I encourage them to to take their supplements. I agree. I think um, I, I do the same as well. I don't typically order them, but if they're there or if they're interested or I happen to see it when I'm looking at it, I'll say that, hey, by the way, your vitamin D levels were low. What are you doing about it? Um, but but I do think it's not like the standard of care right now within the chronic pain community. So we talked about a lot of the benefits of all of these types of vitamins. What are some some side effects that patients should be cautious of and possibly even overdosing on certain types of vitamins, right? Overdoing it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, a, a lot of these dietary supplements are safe and well tolerated when you take them at the recommended doses. Um, and the most common side effects for most of these supplements include things like GI upset. But some supplements um, that I mentioned, things like fish oil and vitamin E, can increase bleeding risk. So that can be important, especially if you're taking other medications that might thin your blood or if you're going to have surgery. And the other risk that I often counsel patients about uh, is that because these things are not regulated by the FDA, you need to make sure that you're getting them from a reputable source because there can be other things in them that you don't necessarily know about that could cause harm, like pesticides, heavy metals, or microbial contaminants. So I tell patients to buy from sources within the U.S., um, verified by an independent third party, like um, U.S. Pharmacopeia, so that's the little USP label, or NSF, um, or consumerlab.com, those third party groups verify safe manufacturing practices. That doesn't necessarily guarantee safety for the supplement, but it does substantially decrease the risk of harm. 
So I also recommend to patients that they always start at the lowest recommended dose first, go up slowly, and then taper or discontinue if any of those side effects are experienced. I like that. We talked about a lot of the conventional supplements, right? So vitamins and minerals in general, but what about some of the non-traditional ones? Like I had a patient the other day that was asking about ashwagandha uh, or garlic or ginseng or something like that, or even something devil's claw root, which I had to look up the other day <laughs> because there are so many out there that people claim help with pain or you know vitality. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do think there's some promise to some of them. I mean, some of these things have been widely used for literally thousands of years, right? Like turmeric and ginger and garlic. So there has to be something to it, right? Um, or at the very least, they're they're relatively they're pretty safe because if people started dropping dead from turmeric over the past four thousand years, um, you'd notice a pattern, right? And curry would be very different. But on the flip side, I am a bit skeptical about things that claim to do just about everything. Like I've been seeing people tout the benefits of ashwagandha like everywhere lately. And it seems like it does everything from reduce cancer risk to increase fertility, to improving matter memory and athletic performance and mood and energy. And oh, by the way, it decreases pain too. Um, and you could say the same thing about like the claims for turmeric or ginseng or ginger. To be honest, I'd never heard about devil's claw root until you asked me about it, but it's not surprising to me as I was looking it up that in addition to claiming to treat low back pain and arthritis, that um, its proponents also claim for it to be effective in lowering cholesterol and treating upset stomach, um, treating skin conditions, and lowering high blood pressure. So lots of things. I actually think the most important point to make here is that you mentioned, I think, curcumin, that's the main active compound of turmeric. And the turmeric root contains over 200 different compounds that we know of, um, maybe even more. So that's probably some of what we're seeing with all of these like different herbal supplements, like different parts of the, the, the herb are probably responsible for different effects. Um, and so when you think about an herbal supplement, you're thinking, think about it as a cocktail of different potential medications, right? Um, and so um, if you take turmeric, for example, curcumin is the main active ingredient in, in turmeric that we think is, is providing some of the health benefits. Um, it does seem to have some antibacterial, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties, um, but there are other things in there as well. Um, I think curcumin is particularly interesting because um, there's some evidence that it works along the same pathways that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen do. And there's also some clinical evidence that it can decrease pain, particularly inflammatory type pain conditions, um, but generally at levels much higher than what you'd normally consume in the human diet. So for these herbal supplements, you have to be careful to think about whether you're getting an extract of hundreds of different compounds, which may or may not be helpful or harmful, or might have enough of the relevant compounds you want, or if that supplement only contains the active ingredients that you want, and whether those active ingredients are the right thing for your pain. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. It, it is individualized to a certain degree as well. The other thing I was going to mention when you were talking about that is Oftentimes, patients who are looking to non-traditional supplements, they already are on 
medications potentially even, right? For cholesterol, for diabetes, whatever it may be. What about drug interactions? What if you're taking a ton of ashwagandha or turmeric curcumin, whatever it may be? We don't have enough research as far as I know, and you would know more about interactions with certain types of medications. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think this is the important thing to remember um, is that even though these are considered dietary supplements, they're not regulated, you should think of them as being like drugs. And they, just like drugs, can have drug-drug interactions. And so you should always talk to your doctor when you have, um, when you're taking these supplements, especially if you have chronic medical conditions or are taking other medications. That's the most important thing to, to make sure that you and your doctor are aware of all that's going on that may affect your health and um, kind of understand your priorities and make sure to watch out for any risks that might be involved with taking these uh, supplements. Yes, absolutely. I think that's an important point for our listeners to take away that as much as they may seem benign and something that our families tell us to take, I know for sure my mom always tells me to take turmeric as soon as I have any symptoms of a cold. And, you know, it is, it seems benign, but oftentimes if you're taking other medications, especially a lot of them, it's important for them to understand there might be interactions with it. Do you ever yourself um, introduce the concept of taking, hey, maybe vitamin C might be important for you to take or vitamin D if a patient didn't necessarily bring it up? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's worth considering if a patient seems open to it and is interested and they may not necessarily say like, oh, what about vitamin C or what about, um, you know, X, Y, or Z supplement, but they might say like, oh, are there anything other things that are not, uh, you know, prescription drugs or not procedures that I can do? to treat my pain. And that's a good segue for me to talk about a lot of different multimodal pain treatment strategies, whether it's like kind of behavioral therapies or exercise or dietary supplements. And I won't discuss supplements at the exclusion of other treatments, especially because supplements aren't well-studied and well-regulated. Um, and so I'm very honest with patients about the limitations of the data and make sure to counsel them on all the pertinent risks. Um, but I think it's a case-by-case -case basis, and every patient has different priorities and different risk tolerance for any type of treatment. And so I want to get a sense from the patient first about you know, what their priorities are and what their level of tolerance of certain side effects might be um, before I you know, counsel them one way or the other. You're absolutely right, and I love that you mentioned that this is a very comprehensive approach to chronic pain. It's not just supplements or not just, you know, behavioral therapy or acupuncture, whatever it may be, there really is a multimodal approach to, to treating chronic pain. So I really do think our listeners will like to hear that. Do you think that patients are becoming more self-aware about what the other treatments are and trying to consider a holistic approach to healthcare? Yeah, I certainly hope so. I, I, I think that pain is such a complicated thing and clearly there is more than just one thing going on for any patient who has chronic pain. And so I always describe it to patients as, okay, we want to have a multimodal treatment strategy because we're trying to attack this very complicated thing from as many angles as possible. And a lot of times doing just one thing isn't going to be enough to control um, the pain in the way that um, is going to be 
best for your functioning or um, your overall um, activity tolerance and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And if you had to tell listeners one thing for their health, their well-being, whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be about chronic pain and supplements. I asked this to all of our interviewers at the end, but what, what is that one thing you would recommend that, hey, you have to incorporate this in your multimodal approach to pain, do this? It's a hard question, I know. <laughs> I really think it's a matter of perspective. I would tell patients or your listeners that they should approach chronic pain as just like having any other chronic health condition, whether it's like hypertension or diabetes. There's no one size fits all quick fix cure. Some people are more prone to it than others, but if you have it, there shouldn't be any shame about it. And there are a wide range of treatment options that are available. And that can include anything from diet and supplements we discussed to exercise, medications, um, complementary integrative techniques, procedural interventions, any of those things. And just as with any other chronic medical condition, we need patient input and engagement in order for these therapies to work effectively. So it's all about looking at chronic pain in the right way and tackling it with that mindset of let's consider all the reasonable options and figure out the best combination for this patient. You're absolutely right. I really do like that. So thank you so much, Dr. Tina Doshi, for all of your insight. I too learned a lot of information. So this was a great uh, interview. I really appreciate your time. Please tell our listeners where they can find you and your work. So I am on Twitter at, at Dr. Underscore Tina Doshi. Excellent. Well, we look forward to connecting more and our listeners hearing about everything that we spoke about today. Thank you. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.